Thank you, Dr. Aiken, for that introduction. Thank you all for being here. It's good to see so many bodies believing in higher theological education. I bring you greetings from the Northern Kingdom, at least one tribe of it, uh, Trinity Evangelical Divinity School. And it is a real honor for me to be here. I, I've lectured at other seminaries in the Southern Baptist family, New Orleans, Southeastern, Midwestern, but never Southern. It's officially an away game, but it feels like I'm playing at home. I grew up in Baptist churches. I read the books your professors write. And I've personal ties with several of your faculty members. And two of them, Drs. Wellam and Allison, were among my first PhD students I ever taught at Trinity. But I'm happy to admit that I am now their student. But the main reason I feel at home is because both at Trinity and at Southern, we are theological seminaries. Do you know uh, the etymology of the term seminary? It comes from the Latin word for seed. And a seminarium is a seed plot, a place for planting seeds and growing clergymen, people who themselves can sow the word of God and in so doing become farmers of men and women. I think this is the reason that the late John Sailhammer gave a lecture in 1993 expressing his vision for theological education. And it was titled was The Seminary as a Textual Community, a community that understands its existence in relation to interpreting authoritative texts. This textual nature of the seminary leads directly to my topic for this year's Norton Lectures, which has to do with the kind of readers seminaries cultivate. I'm dedicating these lectures to Dr. David Dockery to mark his 70th birthday. It's only fitting because in his 2018 Norton Lectures, he made the way straight for me. He argued that evangelicals and Southern Baptists, though not the same, are complementary forces in the advance of the gospel. And in those lectures, he said, I've had one foot in the Southern Baptist life and one foot in the evangelical world, and I'm comfortable in both places. And I could say almost the same thing. I'd have to amend it slightly. Here I stand on one foot. <laughs> but David Dockery practiced what he preaches. He's he left his country and his people at Union University in Tennessee to go to a land the Lord showed him, where he became not a great nation, but for five years, the president of my trinity. More than that, President Dockery has been a leading light in Christian theological higher education and a model of convictional civility. And finally, I detect in him and in his work not least in the doctrine of scripture and biblical hermeneutics, I detect a kindred theological spirit. But please don't hold that against him. <laughs> so here then is the question I'd like us to think about over the next couple of days. What kind of textual community should a seminary be? And what kind of reading culture should it cultivate? I hope you take your institutional middle name seriously, theological. A seminary is a theological textual community. 
And that means that we should be cultivating a distinctly theological reading culture. But what's that? Well, this is what I mean by this term, mere Christian hermeneutics. I'm curious, what's your knee-jerk response to that idea, mere Christian hermeneutics? Frankly, it makes me laugh, because if you know anything about the centuries-long conflict over the Bible's interpretation, also known as church history, um, <laughs> you know there's nothing mere about biblical hermeneutics. My use of the term mere, of course, is indebted to C.S. Lewis, for whom mere meant not what is inconsequential, but what is essential. So what I'm after in these lectures, and what I think seminaries should be after, is a kind of biblical literacy, what every Christian needs to know in order to read the Bible rightly. Two more introductory points. First, these lectures are just a little fragment of my lifelong quest to answer one question, the question that led me to Cambridge on my PhD. What does it mean to be biblical? I know what the Bible is, but that qualifying adjective, biblical, that's elusive. You see, as a student, I was reading theologians, lots of theologians, and they all claimed to be biblical. They all wrapped themselves in that qualifier but they disagreed about the content of the doctrines they were discussing. So think about that suffix, ikul, biblical, like logical or comical or radical. That suffix means pertaining to, like, related to. So someone who's logical thinks according to the laws of logic. So I think we value being biblical in theology because we want to think and act in ways that correspond to the Bible, the word of God in human words. My systematic theology would be but a noisy gong or clanging cymbal if it were not first and foremost biblical. But what does that mean? Second introductory point, these lectures are a preview of my current work in progress. Yes, another must-have volume for your personal libraries. <laughs> uh, but when I was a seminary student, the bookstore manager would always console the, those of us who couldn't afford the nice new books. He said, wait for the movie to come out. <laughs> but I'm doing it backwards. I'm giving you the motion lecture first, a three-hour trailer of a forthcoming <laughs> epic. But I think the old adage is going to apply here too. The book was much better than the movie. <laughs> so saying a brief word about the book's premise, structure, and goal, I hope will orient you to our, uh, these lectures. The premise of the book is that biblical interpretation is an uphill climb. The church fathers compared reading the Bible to climbing a mountain. And of course, the mountaintop is the place where one is most likely to hear the voice of God. And that's my premise too. We ultimately read scripture to hear, know, and meet God. That's why I'm making the effort at the climb. As to the structure of my book, it has two parts. And each of the two parts makes 
an ascent. So I have to climb this mountain twice in my book. Uh, the first part focuses on the literal sense of scripture, getting the letter of the text right. But then the second part focuses on the light of Christ, what I take to be the true subject matter of scripture. Both ways up the mountain are what I call transfigural. Part one is transfigural because it focuses on the biblical figures that connect across trans the two testaments. And part two is transfigural because it focuses on Jesus' transfiguration, a key moment in what I call the economy of light. The economy of light, the ordered way in which the triune God communicates the light that he is, the knowledge of himself to us. And then the goal of the work is to read God's word in such a way that standing in the light, we become children of light. So in the Bay of Biblical Studies, there are many boats fishing for meaning. What each catches depends on many factors, the choice of bait, lure, spear, and so on. If you're using a traditional fishing pole, you still have to decide where to cast it, how deep to let it sink, and all those things that I think I know what I'm talking about, but I'm not a fisherman. Success or failure, I know this about fishing, it also depends on patience. How long are you willing to sit there and wait? Well, an exegetical method is a little bit like casting a lure. An exegetical method is basically the formalization of an interpretive insight, an intuition. For example, one exegete might have an interest in the similarities that obtain between the three synoptics. It's fascinating to compare them side by side. If you pursue that interest rigorously, you're doing redaction criticism. Another exegete may have a special interest in how the evangelists depict women, especially the ones who follow Jesus. And that leads to a certain interpretive interest and way of reading the scripture too. Now there are many possible interpretive interests, many ways of hooking on to the meaning of scripture. I think the legitimate interests are those that lead us deeper in towards textual understanding. And texts are complex. They can be read from different angles. So I think we may need many methodological approaches working together on different levels to do the text justice. No one method catches everything the text throws at us. And interpreters who insist that the text means only what one particular method discovers, well, that reader is like a scientist who says reality is simply what can be, can be seen in, with this particular instrument. But it's presumptuous to think that any one technique or single level interpretive interest can catch the sacred fish. Paul says all things are lawful, but not all things are beneficial. He probably wasn't thinking of interpretive approaches when he cited this Corinthian slogan, but it is nevertheless apt. Not every permissible exegetical method is expedient or edifying. Certain ways of reading the Bible may not hurt the church, but they also may not help it respond to the Apostle Peter's exhortation to grow 
in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So we, as Bible readers and Christians, we have not only to test the spirits, but we also need to test the hermeneutics. We need, in short, to conduct an experiment in criticism. That's the title of a book by C.S. Lewis, in which he proposes to judge a book's value by the kind of reading it engenders. Lewis says, good literature is that which invites or even compels good reading. But my experiment in biblical theological criticism works a bit of a variation. Instead of judging right readers or right readings on the basis of the critical methods they employ, I propose that we judge the rightness of critical methods by the kind of theological readings and readers they beget. This leads me to define a bad interpretive method as one that forbids, forestalls, or frustrates a theological reading of the Bible. And a good exegetical method is one that is open to, facilitates, or necessitates a theological reading. And note the criteria for interpretive goodness I just gave are not a function of general hermeneutics, philosophy, or literary criticism. They are specially appropriate to the Bible. That's special hermeneutics. And I think that's necessary because the Bible isn't just a human book. It's a human instrument in what is ultimately divine discourse. And we need to approach it that way. The Bible is God's personal address to his chosen people. The Bible contains everything we need to know as God's people to become a holy nation. So if that's what the Bible is, if it is divine address to the people of God, then the reader is an addressee, answerable, not a sovereign subject over the text, but answerable to the text. Scripture summons its readers to hearken to the divine address. In Hebrews, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts, Hebrews 3.15. So there's no alibi for reading. We are answerable as readers of scripture. It involves more than parsing verbs, not less, more than information processing, not less, but God's word, God's address, addresses the whole of our being. And that means that right Bible reading is attentive to God's communicative intentions. And part of his intention is that we grow in godliness as we read. So the right reader response is Abraham's, here I am, use me. Lewis's experiment in criticism concludes that the good of reading fiction is that it enlarges our being. He says, in reading great literature, I become a thousand men and yet remain myself. I think reading scripture rightly and responsibly yields an even greater good. I become like one man, Jesus Christ, and yet I remain myself, transfigured. Let's return to the idea of the seminary as a textual community. You know that learning to read is the first and most important step in a child's education. 
It's the doorway to learning everything else. But something similar goes for learning to read the Bible and becoming mature in Christ. Reading is often informative, but it, when we're reading scripture, it should also be a formative process. You see, when we read the Bible theologically, we're entering into holy ground. We're entering into the domain of God's living and active word. And speaking of domains, I think there's an important connection between literacy and citizenship. You may know that one of the most important purposes of education in ancient Athens was to prepare citizens to participate in democracy. Uh, but Americans need to know certain things in order to function as citizens as well. And E.D. Hirsch calls this need to know information to participate rightly in the experiment of democracy we call America. This need to know information he calls cultural literacy. But what seminaries should be after as textual communities is fostering cultures that are conducive to forming citizens of the gospel. All scripture is profitable for training citizens of heaven. And that's what we are. We're people of God, yes, but we make up a holy nation. That is our calling, to be a holy nation. A holy nation should have a holy culture, a set-apart set of values and practices. And I wonder if the set-apart values and practices might also pertain to reading as well. I like what the late theologian John Webster says. He says, there can be few things more necessary for the renewal of Christian theology than the promotion of odd readings of classical Christian texts. I'd like you to see that cultures cultivate. Cultures cultivate. A reading culture cultivates certain practices of reading. And those practices, in turn, cultivate people certain kinds of readers, certain kinds of persons. And this is the true aim of education, to form and build up persons, hopefully into Christ. Education for edification. Nice bumper sticker. <laughs> so this aim, to instill habits of reading scripture that form godly men and women, this aim interestingly enough, is what lies behind many of those patristic and medieval ways of reading the Bible that today we might find strange and perplexing. Think of it this way. Early Christian biblical interpretation was first and foremost a purpose-driven pedagogy, a purpose-driven pedagogy. Frances Young, a patristic scholar, puts it like this. She said, the purpose of biblical exegesis implicit and explicit, was to form the practice and belief of Christian people, individually and collectively. And in her book, The Formation of uh, Biblical Exegesis and the Formation of Christian Culture, she also makes a special point of the way in which reading the Bible constantly forms the Christian imagination. It feeds the imagination. So reading scripture theologically requires an active and alert, canonically formed imagination. 
what I like to call the scriptural imaginary. Reading God's word, uh, like listening to Jesus' parables, should subvert our usual views of the world. So all this to ask again, what kind of reading culture are we, seminaries, cultivating in our respective textual communities? I can assure you that the reading cultures at Yale and Harvard Divinity School form students to be very different kinds of readers than what we're doing at Trinity and Southern. But what complicates things is that our textual communities are influenced by surrounding cultures, sometimes academic cultures, almost always the contemporary culture of the surrounding society. And I think that's why biblical interpretation has always been so challenging. Throughout church history, there's been a, a tension between at least two kinds of reading culture, a church-based monastic culture and an academic or scholastic alternative. And when the tension becomes too pronounced, the result can be a, a pathological, unhealthy polarization where each of these cultures devalues the contribution of the other. You may be thinking about the tension, for example, between Alexandrian allegorists and the more sober-minded, historically-oriented school of Antioch. And, and that, would, that would be right. That's one example of the tension. But I'm actually thinking just now of another form of this tension. In his short but insightful essay, Meditations in a Tool Shed, C.S. Lewis distinguishes between looking at something, for example, the specks of dust floating in a beam of light in a dark shed, and on the other hand, looking along that beam of light. To look at is to keep a critical distance. To look along is to be involved, to step into the phenomenon you're observing. Well, man cannot live by looking at bread alone. Nor can one rightly respond to God's word simply by looking at it. Nor, uh, nor sorry, Lewis's distinction then, looking at, looking along, is first cousin to this tension between the two reading cultures I've mentioned, the scholastic looking at and the monastic looking along. I think all of us belong to some reading culture or other. But until you meet someone from another culture and perhaps experience culture shock, you may not realize how enculturated your own reading is. Uh, Philip Jenkins followed up his best-selling book, The Next Christendom, with a book on how the Bible is read in the global south. We also encounter different reading cultures when we study church history, which is largely the history of the way the Bible has been read at different times by different people. So I, I trust you're following my contrast of different reading cultures. And uh, now we've, this is sort of a different frame, isn't it, as well? Uh, I, think, I think whoever's behind the technology is trying to soften my appearance. Now I have become like every other man. 
So I want to think about different reading cultures, but now I want to suggest think about different disciplinary reading cultures. Because in a sense, biblical studies and systematic theology represent different reading cultures. This may help explain why InterVarsity Press has just published a pair of books, each representing a reading culture. Hans Borsma's Five Things Theologians Wish Biblical Scholars Knew, and Scott McKnight's Five Things Biblical Scholars Wish Theologians Knew. Is it possible that seminaries, the textual communities in which we live temporarily, study, and read, could these be fields of cross-cultural confusion? Into what kind of reading culture are seminaries socializing students? Well, since modernity, theological education has been working with a thorn in its flesh, maybe more than one thorn. One is the segregation between monastic and scholastic reading cultures, and that separation has led to the theological anemia of the church and the ecclesial amnesia of the academy. But another is this divide between the disciplines of biblical scholarship and systematic theology. You see, in many universities, maybe not here, but in many universities, the study of the Bible is a theology-free zone. It's a historical project, not a confessional endeavor. And the thing about reading cultures is that they influence the kinds of questions we put to the biblical text. They frame the kinds of things we see in the biblical text. The philosopher Charles Taylor, in trying to articulate what makes our age secular, says that moderns look at the world with what he calls an imminent frame of reference. We live where the, in an age where the only right questions to put to anything are this-worldly questions. This-worldly questions. There's no place for inquiries about the supernatural or heaven or God. We can still talk about religion, but that's just weird human behavior. <laughs> this imminent frame of reference constricts our imaginations, and it shrinks the social imaginary. The story we tell ourselves, the story we live out, the story we tell us ourselves about the world and ourselves and, and reality as a whole. Well, Michael Legaspi has shown that modern biblical studies is a child of the imminent frame of reference. It is what begot the famous documentary hypothesis, the explanation of how Genesis came to be written, because of course it couldn't be divinely inspired. It begot historical criticism in general, this persistent suspicion that biblical appearances may not line up with historical reality. Well, systematic theologians, I've got to be fair here, so I've got to implicate my own discipline. Systematic theologians have been influenced by modernity too. Um, so both disciplines have pursued interpretive interests governed more by maybe history, the biblical scholars, philosophy, the systematicians, governed by, by, more by those stories than by the story of scripture itself. And then to make matters worse as far as creating a coherent reading culture, for the past two centuries, the two disciplines have sometimes 
not even been on speaking terms. There's a disciplinary wall that has lasted longer than the Berlin Wall. It's a dividing wall, not of hostility, but of indifference and incomprehension. So to paint with a broad brush, and again, there are exceptions to the story I'm telling, but I think it's true of the West in general. To paint with a broad brush, modern biblical scholars use an array of methods that, at least until about the 1970s, appeared to focus on the world behind the biblical text, whereas theologians were focusing their attention on some aspect of the world in front of the biblical text. The world behind refers to the lived context of the people who produced it. The world in front of the text refers to the lived context of those who consume it now, readers. So this dichotomy, it's a kind of war of the worlds, raises an interesting question. And I'm going to take this question up in my second lecture tomorrow. And the question is, in which world should we locate the literal meaning of the text? So I've been talking about this conflict or tension between two reading cultures. Let me say now that I've spent a good part of my adult life trying to bridge or jump over or maybe just wade through this ugly ditch between biblical studies and theology. But I found it everywhere I've gone. It exists in evangelical and not evangelical schools. It exists in the states and in other countries. I saw it up close and personal when I taught in Scotland at the University of Edinburgh. I've also witnessed it when I've given lectures in Australia, Brazil, the Philippines, Canada, and elsewhere. This ditch is everywhere, and it's ugly. I don't want to overstate the problem. There are other people trying to get across it, but I don't want to gloss over it either because this dichotomy does not serve the church, and it does not serve the pastors who preach in church. So we need to work together to put back together what modernity has tried to put asunder. In order to read the Bible rightly, we need the resources of biblical scholarship and systematic theology alike. And if I had more time, I would add other disciplines like church history and missiology and homiletics. Uh, but I only have time to focus on this tension. And to heal this divide, we need to understand it. So I want to return to the scene of the crime, the great hermeneutical reversal of the 18th century. That moment when, instead of providing the true story of the world that framed everything else, the story of the Bible became one episode in some other story being told by a non-theological discipline. That was the great reversal, a kind of Copernican turn. Instead of the Bible telling the true story, we now tell the true story about the Bible. So the Bible is no longer the sun. It's just one of the satellites that orbit the sun. It's no longer the light by which people saw everything else. That was one modern development. Another one was the development of historical consciousness. Modern men and women became aware of another kind of nakedness, a kind of guilty awareness that what people, ourselves included, say and think and do is 
more or less conditioned by our historical, social, and cultural context. Modern biblical scholarship was born of this combination of historical consciousness and cultural consciousness. And this led to this critical mindset, this way of reading that privileged certain frames of reference, the imminent frames of reference, where the assumption was we'll only understand texts when we can situate them in their original context without appealing to God. So let me say clearly that as a Christian theologian, I have nothing against history. He is risen. Christianity is a historical religion. So my concern is not with history per se, but with what we think history is. Is it a closed space-time causal continuum? Or is it a stage for divine as well as human action? You see, this historical frame of reference only becomes problematic when it insists upon being an imminent frame and it shuts the cosmic door to the presence and activity of the triune God. When it does that, when a historical frame of reference insists on being imminent, then it's, it's saying that the Bible only has a natural history. And that's how it's been treated in the university. And there's a danger that we might become methodological naturalists, reading the Bible as we would any other book. You see, methodological naturalism means that neither God nor theology has an important role to play in reading scripture. I've mentioned C.S. Lewis several times today, haven't I? I've just sort of noticed that I keep saying his name. I've got to do it again. Because uh, Lewis, well, he was trying to come to grips with his age, and he was trying to struggle with what modernity is. And he was well acquainted with naturalism. And he described naturalism as a hangover from our night out with modernity. He said, we all have naturalism in our bones. And even conversion does not at once work the infection out of our system. Why do you think that is? Why do you think conversion wouldn't rid the body of this toxin naturalism? I think it's because naturalism has wormed its way into our imaginations. And it takes more than conversion to switch that picture. We have to immerse ourselves in the world of scripture to change that picture. In any case, as in all strained relationships, it's never one partner's fault. Theologians read scripture with a frame of reference too. I've mentioned this, drawn not from history, but from philosophy. The context that often matters most to contemporary theologians is something in our contemporary context. That's why I refer to the world in front of the text. David Tracy, the University of Chicago theologian puts it well. He says, what modernity provides for the naming of a god is a series of seemingly endless debates on the correct ism, that is, the correct set of abstract propositions which name and think God. You see, what he's saying is theologians are reliant on a frame of reference that does not come from scripture. It's some ism. Now, biblical scholars hearing this quote from, Trini uh, from Tracy may be inclined to lament, there they go again, imposing extra textual frames of reference onto the biblical text. 
And I resonate with that concern. Again, for me, it's all about being biblical. So I think we have to be vigilant. We've always got to be asking ourselves, which frame of reference allows us to, to pose the right questions to the biblical text and see what it's actually talking about? Because that's what's at stake with frames of reference, not the sense of the text, not the verbal meaning, but the reference, the decision as to what the text is talking about. That's what's at stake in a frame of reference. The theologian Oliver Crisp, thinking of cultures again, reading cultures, defines an intellectual culture as a grouping within a discipline that identifies itself as having a distinctive approach to its subject matter and a particular methodological approach to its subject. So I'm coming back to my first question. What kind of intellectual culture should a seminary foster? Do we have to choose between Alexandria and Antioch, biblical studies and systematics? Walter Brueggemann, an Old Testament scholar, thinks the culture wars over how to read the Bible are here to stay. He says, there can, in my judgment, be no final resolution of the tension between the systematizing task of theology and the disruptive work of biblical interpretation. Well, the victim in this cold war of the worlds, this tension between the disciplines, the, the, the victim here is the world of the text the story of scripture itself. Ironically, it's the world depicted by the one story of scripture in canonical context. That's what suffered the most collateral damage, neglect. That is, people no longer read the Bible as a unified whole. So what's been lost in this conflict is the ability to read along the grain of the text, not simply looking at it. There's another book I wanted to mention by Ezra Klein, Why We're Polarized. It's not about biblical interpretation, it's about our present political fissures. But many of his insights, I think, apply. He says the most important psychological imperative most of us have in a given day is protecting our idea of who we are. I, I can easily apply this to debates about biblical interpretation. Nothing makes us identify with our interpretive tribe so strongly as the prospect of losing power and influence and maybe our own sense of self. But I think our primary self-conception as scholars of the Bible and theologians should be our identity in Christ, not what's on our diplomas. Miroslav Wolf draws an important distinction between a healthy differentiation and an unhealthy exclusion. He says, we are who we are, not because we are separate from the others who are next to us, but because we are both separate and connected, both distinct and related. The boundaries that mark our identities are both barriers and bridges. But what we need now between the disciplines is more disciplinary integration, not segregation. Interpreters of the world, unite. And what Wolf says about individuals, I think applies to the two cultures we've been describing. He, he goes on to say in the book, I do not want to be myself only. I want the other 
to be part of who I am. And I want to be part of the other. Again, he's not thinking about the relationship of exegesis and systematic theology, but I like this quote when I think about the relationship. Another way of making the point is to say that both exegetes and theologians must go back to church. And I'm not saying they have to recover their faith. I'm not talking about conversion. I'm assuming they have a personal faith. I'm talking about reading culture, the reading culture in which we participate. And to go back to church is a matter not simply of finding a safe place to talk, but reading in the church will affect the kinds of questions we ask to read the Bible in the church. And I'm thinking about the communion of saints worldwide, past and present. That's what I'm talking about, going back to the church. This matters because it does affect the kind of questions we ask. And it sets our frame of reference as well. Now here I need to name one more crisis because today the church itself is one of the institutions in which people have lost confidence, which is sad. So another book, not by a theologian, but I think is relevant by Yuval Levin, entitled A Time to Build, has something for us, the Christian church, to think about. He thinks the present polarization in American politics is actually the result of weak institutions. They aren't functioning to form citizens as they ought. They aren't functioning to form people who know how to work together to accomplish important social goals. And so his prescription for our polarized time is a renewal of our historic institutions. And we renew these historic institutions for the sake of personal formation. Sadly, he isn't thinking about the church first and foremost, but I think the quote is still apt. Enduring progress happens soul by soul, but that is actually why it can only happen through the institutions of society which touch and form each of us. If he can say that about social institutions in general, how much more should we be able to say this about the church and the seminary? And so this, the question then for today's seminaries in the midst of these reading wars is not only what are we teaching, but what kind of students are we forming? What kind of readers are we forming? It's a perennial question that I think is as urgent, maybe more urgent than ever. It's an always relevant question, though. And one of the reasons it's important is I find that eventually everything happening in culture affects the way people read the Bible. And we need to be aware of that and be vigilant and make sure that we're forming a culture guided by the questions and values of the church. Levin, commenting on the current political scene, says, a progressivism that leans towards identity politics is the reigning orthodoxy. That resonates and rings true to me. But alas, I think it also applies to biblical interpretation, at least if we look at the big world, the, so, the society of biblical literature, the academic uh, group of scholars. 
And so now, since I have a platform, I can bring out my pet theory. And so be gentle with it. I only have one pet, and I'm fond of it. Um, I'm a Cambridge grad, as has been said, and I pay homage to another alum with the name of my theory, Van Hooser's Laws of Hermeneutical Motion. The first law, every literary theory of liter and every literary theory or form of literary criticism developed in the academy eventually moves someone, usually scholars, to use it as a method for interpreting the Bible as well. I have not falsified that theory. Every possible kind of criticism that I've discovered in the academy eventually shows up in the way people read the Bible, including deconstruction. The second law of hermeneutical motion is that every cultural trend or significant social development eventually moves people to read the Bible from that particular perspective with a special interest. And publishers are tracking this as well. You know, any fad that's popular in our society, pretty soon there'll be a study Bible that focuses <laughs> on that fad. Uh, the third law is more like a barometer. It states that how people are reading the Bible may be the best indication of which way the cultural winds are blowing. How people read the Bible can be an indicator of cultural climate change. Now, the alternative to being tossed to and fro by every cultural trend or carried about by every wind of hermeneutical doctrine, the alternative is to return to church and to learn to read the Bible in the church with the people of God across the centuries and the globe. And I still believe that hearing the word of God rightly sets captive imaginations free, presents Christ, and forms readers unto godliness. So again, the polarization when it's pushed to pathological extremes, this polarization of biblical studies and systematic theology, that does not serve the church. I'm not saying church members have to seek reparations. <laughs> I know my institution could not afford them. But if we're truly sorry and recognize that modernity has affected our reading culture, what we can do is commit ourselves to act otherwise in the future. There's no call to vilify either side of this tension. If there must be villains, I can think of only two kinds. Biblical scholars who deny any theological depth dimension, thus ruling out the possibility of divine action, call them flat texters, or, or theologians whose interpretive frames float free of the text altogether thus ruling out the possibility of biblical authority, call them free texters. Now, most of these extremes belong to small scholarly sects in the academy, but they're dangerous because they reflect the current cultural currents of the day and they can form students too. So the mirror hermeneutics I'm presenting here calls for a kind of reform of reading cultures. Um, in the one case, theology sometimes comes too late. In the other, scripture figures too little. We need to retrieve better habits of reading. 
Uh, and this is what I mean by saying exegesis and theology have to go back to church, but without forgetting what we learned in school. Well, this talk was um, a little sobering. We've talked about the challenge of the day. I think we have to understand the challenge of the day to realize how urgent our education is. But in my next talk, I'll wax more constructive. I'll argue that seminary, as a textual community, should be forming readers that know how to read the Bible literally. That's a necessary condition for becoming literate. And I'm going to argue that we need both biblical studies and systematic theology to read the Bible literally. But I'm also going to problematize the idea of literality itself. So come back for that. Thank you.